This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our focus, the debate over AUMF, the authorization of the use of military force. Congress passed it back in 2002, nearly 20 years ago, in the aftermath of the 9-11 terror attacks. This was part of the debate back then with Senator Tom Daschle, he was Democratic leader at the time, and Republican Senator John McCain. I will vote to give the president the authority he needs. But I respect those who reach different conclusions. For me, the deciding factor is my belief that a united Congress will help the president unite the world. There is no such thing as a Democrat or Republican war. We vote on this resolution in the same way brave young men and women in uniform will fight and die as a result of our vote as Americans. That from the Senate floor back in 2002. Today, Congress is on the verge of repealing AUMF. It has already passed the House with bipartisan votes and is gaining support in the Senate, with President Biden also supporting its repeal. Leading that effort, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Congress has a way of um, authorizing military action and not putting an end date on it. And then the the authorizations just kind of float out there. And a, a creative president or a president with really creative lawyers can say, oh, hey, wait a minute. This authorization was out there 30 years ago. We can use it now to do a missile strike in Iraq to kill um, Soleimani. Whatever you think about the targeting of Soleimani, the notion that um, it was justified by either of these two legal authorizations should trouble you because, again, these one's 30 years old, right? The other is, is nearly 20 years old. Neither Congress that passed those would have thought it could have, it could have been used in Iraq to kill a military leader of the nation of Iran. That's not what it was about. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Meanwhile, despite support from his own GOP caucus, Republican leader Mitch McConnell is opposing the effort. But one thing hasn't changed, Madam President. The grave threats posed by ISIS, al-Qaeda, and other terrorist groups are as real as they've ever been. And repealing AUMFs without agreeing on a set of new authorities up front will only lead to more uncertainty about what we're going to do about them. For years, U.S. forces have been carefully handling more of the primary responsibilities for counterterrorism to brave local partners. Just ahead, more on the debate over AUMF. Later, we'll get the perspective of Dr. Elizabeth Saunders. She is a professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She also serves as a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. But we begin with John Glazer. He is director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. My first question, exactly what is AUMF? Well, that's an acronym that stands for Authorization for the Use of Military Force. It's a uh, sort of resolution piece of legislation that Congress can pass to authorize the president to use force abroad. Um, Typically, historically, you know, the Constitution gives Congress the power to declare war, uh, and the president gets to execute the military mission that they give permission for. But these days, uh, you know, they make a little less effort, and instead they offer resolutions like these ones that... um, tend to be overly broad in their definition and tend to give the president kind of an open blank check for um, uh, presidential war-making uh, without real borders or 
uh, limits uh, inherent in, in the execution of that. So it's a kind of modern uh, feature of the way Congress has uh, allowed its war powers to be usurped. So based on that, as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, how often have we seen AUMF on the Senate floor, and how would you change it? Well, there have been a number of attempts, uh, occasionally impressively bipartisan attempts, to uh, either repeal old and obsolete AUMFs um, or to replace the ones that continue to be cited as legal justification for executive war powers that are currently being exercised. Um, it happened multiple times during the Trump admin- uh, during the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And now there's a pretty broad bipartisan view that we should repeal at least some of these, um, most namely the, uh, the 2002 authorization to use of military force against Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. That piece of legislation is still on the books, and so therefore still is an option for the president to cite in, in ongoing uh, 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 hostilities. But the entity against which that resolution authorized uh, American force no longer exists. And the state of Iraq is technically a security partner of the United States now. Um, the actual 2002 AUMF has not been cited as the primary legal justification for any uh, action inside Iraq for more than a decade. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is a, a dead letter. And so long as it remains on the books, it will allow kind of these expansive, uh, in my opinion, extra constitutional executive war powers. What should be done to replace them or to, to, to fix this problem? In my opinion, uh, all the current authorizations for use of military force should be taken off the books. They should be repealed. Um, they should not be replaced with new language that provides the president with kind of renewed uh, powers to engage in another kind of multi-generational uh, conflict. Um, if the president espies a specific threat to the American homeland, uh, he can always go to Congress and ask for their rapid approval to uh, engage in a specific mission. But the way things are now, these post-9-11 authorizations for the use of military force just continue to kind of permit uh, a kind of extra legal executive uh, uh, power, uh, executive branch rulemaking in roughly a dozen countries. We're, we're, we're in active hostilities in roughly a dozen countries. And uh, most Americans have no idea about this. And so it seems to me that um, Congress's responsibility and constitutional duty is to rein in these executive excesses and ensure that we're not um, engaging in prolonged warfare that is not uh, actually protecting the United States from a, from an uh, objective uh, and specific threat. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with John Glazer. He is the Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Let me follow up on that point because it is, as we've been hearing from proponents of changing AUMF, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, among others, the need for Congress to, as you just mentioned a moment ago, to reassert its authority as a co-equal branch of government in this country. That's right. And and as I said, sort of ever, I mean, for many decades, there's been a kind of slow, gradual expansion of executive war powers in this domain. And Congress has, tends to be happy to permit that usurpation of power because politically it's kind of good for them. If the president gets all of the 
uh, credit for a specific military mission, well, that's fine. The party that he uh, is associated with will will be able to celebrate. But if uh, a presidential war power decision, uh, you know, goes poorly and gets a lot of bad press and it's not good politically, Congress can kind of stay out of it. So it's sort of in their interest. They have some incentives to uh, permit expansive presidential war powers, as they have in the past 20 years uh, post 9-11. But it's, it's, uh, it, while it's, while it might be politically convenient, I think it's very dangerous for the country. We're talking about a um, kind of gradual erosion of constitutional principles and checks and balances, and that bodes ill, I think, for the future of the republic. With regard to our current operations, you know, we're engaged in a lot of countries that don't present an obvious threat to the U.S. homeland. You know, um, the U.S. military is supposed to be used to uh, protect incoming threats uh, that uh, where Americans might get uh, hurt or killed and American interests might be damaged. Um, but what we're talking about is sort of non-state actor roving militants in multiple countries that are mostly disconnected um, and have very little to do with anything uh, that uh, sort of sparked this global war on terror. It uh, doesn't have anything to do with 9-11. We're fighting groups that didn't exist at the time of 9-11. We're fighting other groups under these authorizations that are enemies with al-Qaeda. And so the plain language of these authorizations do not authorize this kind of sprawling, borderless, uncontained presidential warfare without check. Um, and so they need to be repealed. And we need to have some better sense about what kinds of threats this country actually faces as opposed to these uh, deeply inflated threats like the one from terrorism. But if you could, maybe a historical perspective, when you say that Congress delegates its authority, that it basically wants to stay out of it in case that military operation uh, is a failure, how did we get to this point today? Is it a direct result of Vietnam? Because clearly we didn't see that after Pearl Harbor, which launched the U.S. into World War II. Well, Vietnam was a major inflection point and had a lot of influence on the way things have developed. But I think this goes back much further. There's a lot of good history out there. Um, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. actually wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency, and he suggested that it goes back to the Civil War. Uh, You can make an argument that every time the executive branch is provided with uh, sort of uh, crisis powers, um, sort of expansive powers for war or to do other things, um, that's, a, that's a very hard thing to reverse. You know, you can make the argument that in some times, in some really pressing times, the president does uh, need to exercise um, uh, broader powers than, than in normal times, but when we get back to normal times, those powers never recede. They're never uh, sort of uh, fixed back to where they ought to be. And, uh, you know... Um, Vietnam was huge. I think the Cold War was huge because we, at the start of the Cold War, what we did was massively expand the definition of our interests. You know, what kinds of things that go on in the world will prompt U.S. military intervention? That question had a lot more answers starting in the Cold War than it did prior to that. And so, you know, we've, as the kind of global superpower, we really obtained a kind of unnatural expansion of our notion of what U.S. interests are and what the U.S. role in the world should be. And I think that's also part of why it's very difficult, institutionally speaking and legally speaking, 
to reverse uh, the, the, these developments in terms of the expansion of executive war powers. So, John Glazer, let me go back to your words, a piece that you posted on the Cato website May 28th. You wrote the following, No current threat remotely justifies roving presidential authority to wage war on multiple continents. To end the war forever war, end the forever authorization. How do we get there from your perspective? Well, right now, the politics make that goal very difficult, I think. I think there's some recognition among many in Congress that the 2002 uh, authorization needs to be repealed. 268 House members voted to repeal that. Um, but the 2001 authorization is, uh, you know, continues to be cited for a lot of ongoing hostilities and there's military activity in, in multiple theaters. And um, many people in Congress want that to continue. They assume it, it must continue because they think we're deeply threatened by terrorism. And I guess uh, my, my, my message there would be that I think 9-11 was such a traumatic event for the country that it led us to misperceive the threat of terrorism. It was such an outlier in terms of terrorist attacks, historically speaking, that uh, we interpreted it as a kind of harbinger of things to come, a new normal, when in fact it was, a, it was an awfully lucky shot by a bunch of uh, scoundrels. Um, and uh, tragic though it was, uh, I don't think the military approach, uh, global war on terror, as it were, uh, is really uh, an appropriate um, tool uh, uh, to to uh, uh, address this problem. From the beginning, it should have been more law enforcement and intelligence work, and a kind of very difficult, I understand, but appropriate um, uh, scrutiny of uh, what what threats we face, instead of uh, a kind of hysterical presidential blank check for war. And so. You know, if we get to the point where Congress is seriously debating uh, repealing the 2001 authorization for use of military force, my concern is that they'll move further to replace it with something else. And replacing it will not bring an end to the forever war. Uh, It will just institutionalize it. And I think Americans and even many members of Congress at this point understand that we need to go back these post-9-11 excesses. And so your message to Congress, what is it? We are safe and secure from terrorism. The president has the ability to continue uh, battling uh, any kinds of terrorist threats that may arise that are direct and uh, uh, imminent. Um, He can ask Congress for that authority. There's no need to reverse and upend the constitutional system by making it, uh, you know, the president has permanent war powers to engage in these missions. And in order for Congress to stop it, it has to assemble a veto-proof majority to check him. That reverses the constitutional system. The way, the way it ought to be is the president must have Congress's permission. And that usually means the country must debate going to war. Congress really has to do something here about the fact that we're engaged in hostility in 12-some-odd countries around the world, and most Americans have no idea. Years ago, a number of U.S. military uh, um, Troops were in Nigeria and got killed. And the surprise among even hawkish foreign policy advocates in, in Congress, like Lindsey Graham, they didn't even know that we had troops deployed in that country. So this is out of hand. We need to get together, debate the merits of the 2001 AUMF, and push towards repealing it so that we can right-size Congress's constitutional powers and the president's. 
John Glazer is a director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He also is the author of the book Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse and How We Can Recover. For your perspective on the debate over AUMF, we thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Spans the weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and we continue our conversation on the debate over AUMF. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Elizabeth Saunders. She serves as an associate professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings here in Washington, D.C. I want to begin with some news this past week. Members of Congress saying we need to study further the 2002 AUMF. When you hear that, what's your reaction? Well, it was a little surprising when uh, President Biden said he was ready to talk about uh, reviewing and maybe repealing the authorizations for the use of military force passed uh, in the wake of September 11th, the first one, and then the 2002 AUMF that authorized the use of force in Iraq. Um, it's not usual that presidents are willing to give back power granted by Congress. They don't want to be reined in. Um, and so that was a pretty big signal that Biden was uh, very interested in pursuing this. And the House had, of course, re- voted to repeal with a fairly substantial bipartisan uh, support. So there had been a pretty substantial group of Republicans who had voted in favor of repealing the 2002 AUMF. And um, the the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, was expected to move legislation through pretty quickly um, on the 2002 AUMF repeal. But apparently five Republican senators want to want to have further study. So I think um, there is a there's a few things going on here. Many people on both sides of the aisle clearly think that it's time to do something about this. It's been nearly 20 years and these documents have both been stretched beyond recognition. The easier path, I think, is the is repealing the Iraq AUMF from 2002 because the Iraq war is technically speaking over. Um and uh, it it just is the cleaner one to repeal. But clearly, members of Congress don't want to um, make this too simple. They don't want to make it too easy. There's there are real reservations in, in, among Republicans um, that we might need this authority to counter ISIS, to counter Iran. Democrats have countered, well, if you want an AUMF against Iran, let's talk about an AUMF against Iran. That's what Representative Gregory Meeks in the House had said. Um, so I think I think there's a little bit of politics and, um, and a lot of um, what, would we, what would we do about the real threats that remain? And I think the bottom line is it's going to be a lot easier to repeal these documents than it will be to replace them. And presidents have since 9-11 all agreed that we need something. Um, And so in the absence of something to replace it, I think there are some Republicans who are putting up the hold the phone. Let's let's talk this through sign. And it seems as if, Dr. Saunders, there's another factor going into play, which is how to interpret AUMF, how lawmakers interpret it and how the White House interprets it. Correct? Yes. I mean, clearly these these authorizations, I think, I think most people agree, including members of Congress, that they've been stretched beyond recognition. They've been used for things they were never intended to. They basically have been used to justify all the military forces in the Middle East since 9-11 between the two of them. 
Um, and there are some who have really genuinely worked hard on this issue. So this uh, legislation put forward by uh, Representative Tim Kaine and Todd Young, and they have really worked hard. I mean, this has been a signature issue for Tim Kaine for a long time. So there are some people who are very sincerely interested in this. I do think that there's another motivation here and one interpretation or one benefit of the AUMF as it currently stands for Congress that is sometimes hard to see, but I think it's kind of always there under the surface. It's a pretty convenient setup for Congress to be able to complain about procedure and to say, well, we don't we don't like that the president didn't consult us and we needed to pass legislation and we we don't like that. And but we support the troops. It basically allows Congress to oppose the president, especially when it's the president of a different party um, on procedural grounds and not have to oppose the use of military force, which can sometimes put members in an awkward position. So between that and presidents um, liking to have as much power and freedom and uh, uh, not be shackled to congressional oversight, um, they as much power as they can, you have a situation where both Congress and the president have been pretty happy to keep the status quo. But on that issue of oversight, if Congress does give the president a blank check, it also means, quite frankly, unchecked intervention by the lawmakers whose power it is to give the president the authority to declare war. Yes, and this is something we've seen going back um, in history. So the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, of course, gave Lyndon Johnson virtually a, a blank check, the famous quote, uh, or I'm paraphrasing, like grandma's nightshirt, it covers everything, right? It it, it, it gave Johnson free reign in Vietnam, and um, Congress came to regret that uh, bitterly. And we now know a lot more about how um, Lyndon Johnson sort of manipulated Congress into, into that vote. Um, so once granted, it's very hard to get this back, the, the authority that Congress grants. And Congress seems to have been okay with that for a long time. And there there's a there are a lot of reasons behind that, but I think one reason is, um, as I said, that it, that it suits Congress to kind of let the president be the one dealing with the military interventions, complain on procedural grounds, but not get too closely involved. What's very interesting now, I think, is President Biden, and what I, what I think really is is, was noteworthy at the beginning of his tenure is very interested in possibly changing course here and giving back some power, um, or at least giving back the authority granted by the 2002 AUMF. And he's been supportive of this effort. Um, and that's interesting for a lot of for a lot of reasons. Um, one is that there there can be a, some pretty big advantages to, to congressional handcuffs. Uh, for presidents, it's easier to negotiate internationally when you can say, well, I got to you have to give me this because I got to appease my opponents back home domestically. Um, it makes American uh, words more credible if you can say, well, if you get, if I if we make this agreement, uh, I can get Congress behind me. Um, it's it the the erosion of of congressional authority in foreign policy and international affairs more generally has real problem makes real uh, um, problems for presidents because they can't get their policies to stick beyond their presidency. And President Obama found this with the Iran deal. Um, he would have probably loved to have that as a treaty, but he had had to settle for an executive agreement and this convoluted vote to disapprove that. Um, 
Bob Corker, the then Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, kind of came up with. Um, And, of course, President Trump was then able to just back away from it. So um, if you want your policies to stick, you need to involve Congress. And that may be one benefit to President Biden of giving back some of this power. I want to follow up on that point, reminding our listeners we are talking to Dr. Elizabeth Saunders. Uh, her book includes Leaders at War, How Presidents Shape Military Interventions. Do you think, and this is your own interpretation, I guess, that one of the reasons why President Biden is supportive of AUMF and getting rid of it is he served for more than three decades in the U.S. Senate. So he understands the role of the legislative branch. He understands the role of the Senate. Yes, and he's written it. Uh, he wrote about that when he was in the Senate, and he was, um, you know, foreign affairs was definitely one of his areas uh, of expertise when he was in in the Senate. So he cares about these issues. He pays attention. He paid attention to them when he was in the Senate. As so, vice president, he did a lot of work in uh, on these issues, um, whether in the Middle East or Europe, um, et cetera. So he clearly cares about this, and he also is has a long history um, since serving as Obama's vice president of wanting to get the U.S. out of the Middle East. So it's also not a surprise on substantive grounds that President Biden wants to make it harder, not easier for the U.S. to stay in the Middle East or get get um, drawn back into a conflict there. Um, his decision to end the war in Afghanistan is of a piece with uh, his stance on the AUMF. So he he definitely um, he he his his um, uh, military action in Syria early in his tenure, um, some people thought, oh, well, he's just doing what all the other presidents have done and stretching these things beyond recognition. But then not long after that, and his justification for that was actually under the U.N. charter, if I'm not mistaken. Um, not long after that, he announced he was in favor of, of doing something about the AUMF. And I think that's it's all related. It's his desire to get Congress behind him. It's it's a desire to have the Senate involved in foreign policy because he he is a, a creature of the Senate in many ways. But it's also just his substantive views. I think he doesn't like the idea of open-ended conflict in the Middle East. And this is the AOMS um, have been a vehicle for that that has enabled open-ended conflict. I'm curious, then, as somebody who teaches foreign policy, how significant this is in terms of the balance of power between the White House and Congress on both ends of Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue? Um, well, it's an interesting question. Um, in the short run, I'm not that surprised that it's hit some political roadblocks. Everything hits political roadblocks in Congress these days. Uh, par- partisan polarization is is just an exceptionally powerful force. And um, you, I was a little surprised at, ha- at the vote to repeal in the House that was even as bipartisan as it was. Um, so in the short run, it may be that not a whole lot happens. I think What's at stake, though, apart from the Middle East policy and the forever wars and the AUMF itself, is a broader question about the role of Congress in foreign policy. And I will confess that when I started teaching more than 10 years ago, I didn't think Congress was that important in foreign policy. And most of my research is focused on the presidency. And now I think Congress is kind of our only hope in terms of um, democracy and foreign policy. And I think it's just essential to rebuild ex- expertise in Congress and um, for Congress to kind of claw back or for the president to grant Congress, again, a, a more significant role in foreign policy because it's the only real route to, to policy stability. I mean, it isn't 
it isn't a good situation for the presidency to be the only institution that's making policy, foreign policy at, for the whole nation. You want some of these things to be hashed out in another institution. That's why we have separation of powers and co-equal branches of government. And without congressional involvement, you're leaving it all up to the president. And, you know, if you like the president, that's fine. But that's putting a lot of, of uh, eggs in, in a very important basket the use of military force. So to me, that's not a great situation. And so this may be a small piece of the effort to rebuild congressional power and foreign policy, but that effort is very important in the long run. Let me conclude on that point then. How do we get there and what would be your specific recommendations? Gosh, if I knew that, I would be, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I may, I might be in a different line of work, but um, I think, it's a hard problem. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm not naive about how difficult it will be. Partisan polarization is, is tearing at the very fabric of democracy in many ways. I am heartened though, that after a long decline in terms of congressional expertise on foreign policy, there has been a wave of newly elected members of Congress, particularly in the house who have a lot of expertise, um, not, and, and they aren't, it, it, there's, there's always been a healthy um, group of, a strong group of veterans in, in the in Congress. These are also um, people who worked on the civilian side of foreign policy, and partly because of the Democratic wave in 2018, many of them are Democrats. But one can hope that maybe some of these will get elected um, on the Republican side too, because I think it's important that we have that expertise in both parties. People like Alyssa Slotkin, Andy Kim. Um, these are folks. Abigail Spanberger. These are folks who um, have national security experience in various agencies, executive branch agencies, intelligence agencies, and and um, and the Pentagon on the civilian side. And I think having that expertise in Congress is very important. It it contributes to oversight. They know what questions to ask. Presidents should be thinking about what they're going to say. What the what that group of national security. Democrats might say, and and you won't always see this show up in the headlines, but the, the shadow of what they might say about a president's policy can actually change the policy even before it's released. So I think having a really strong group of former foreign policy officials or people with expertise in national security on both sides of the aisle is, the, is really critical. So while I don't want to put words in your mouth, what I'm hearing is that you seem cautiously optimistic that we may be turning the corner, that Congress may in fact be reasserting its authority? Um, I would say very, very, very cautiously optimistic, but uh, ever cynical about progress on Capitol Hill. How about that? We'll leave it with that. Dr. Elizabeth Saunders, she is an associate professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Her work available also at WashingtonPost.com. She is a contributor to the political science blog, The Monkey Cage, and serves as a fellow at the Brookings Institution. We thank you for your time and expertise. Thank you so much for having me. And finally, this reminder, you can follow all of C-SPAN's coverage on the web at C-SPAN.org, C-SPAN Radio on Twitter, at C-SPAN Radio, and of course, this podcast, The Weekly. Be sure to listen and follow wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.